All right, just a reminder, on the, the little sheet that I gave you that had the prayer notes on the one side has a sermon outline uh, notes on the other side. If you need a pen, there are pens on the table. Uh, if you need a copy of those sermon notes, they are also on the table at the back. Please feel free to grab a copy. The Bible is God's revelation of himself to his people. It is his story. And that means it is one story from Genesis 1 verse 1 right through to Revelation. Yes, it is 66 books written by, I think, in the neighborhood of 40 authors, if I'm not mistaken, over a period of 1,500 years. But it is one story with one divine author inspiring those men to write the things that they did. In the new year, we'll be looking at the beginning of that story. We're going to start at the beginning of the year with the beginning of the Bible, the book of Genesis. But here's a teaser, if you will, or maybe a spoiler, depending on how you want to look at it. The Bible is the story of God, the creator, who lovingly creates mankind only to have them turn and rebel against him. Forcing him to send them from the garden for their own good. We'll probably look at that when the time comes, but um, when God sends Adam and Eve from the garden, it's not a punitive thing. It is actually a protective thing for them. All of this occurs in the first three chapters of the story. The rest of the story is about God in infinite holiness, justice, grace, and mercy, revealing his plan for redeeming and restoring rebellious mankind to a relationship with him, initiating the rescue from the curse that they brought on themselves at great cost to himself. In chapter 3 of Genesis, as he details the consequences of Adam and Eve's sin and disobedience, then he also proclaims the promise of a savior, a descendant who will crush the head of the deceiver, Satan, though he himself will be wounded. The story continues with God choosing one man, Abraham, and establishing with him a covenant in Genesis 22, 17 and 18, we read this. Two slides. There we go. I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And now this. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. God's desire was that the nation Israel, which would be the offspring of Abraham through the promised descendant Isaac, would display his glory to the surrounding nations. They didn't do this very well at all, and rather they turned to idols, rebelling against their God, and he had to discipline them time and time again. Yet, despite their faithlessness, 
God remained faithful to his promise, a promised descendant of whom God would make a people who would display his glory. This descendant was still to come. We fast forward to the book of Isaiah and we read this prophecy in chapter 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, this prophecy cannot be referring back to Isaac, the promised child of Abraham, since this one will sit on the throne of David, who came generations after Isaac. This must be another child. Still a descendant of Abraham, a king to sit on the throne of David, and yet more, so much more. No descendant of Abraham or of David had ever been called mighty God or everlasting father. But the serpent crusher of Genesis chapter 3 would be exactly that. Who was this one who was to come? What kind of man would he be? How could he sit over an everlasting kingdom to establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness forevermore? Surely such a king could only come about by the zeal of the Lord of hosts. And still, Israel disobeyed and defied the Lord their God. First, one half of the kingdom, and then the other was sent into captivity and exile. Toward the end of the Old Testament, The nation has been allowed to return, though only a remnant do so. And they rebuild Jerusalem, although it is only a shadow of its former glory. The people are under the rule of the Medo-Persian Empire. They have some freedoms, but they are far from independent. It is in this time that the last of the Old Testament prophets speak. Malachi is his name. He prophesies judgment against the nation because of their continued wickedness. And yet, the Lord reminds them of his promise. The final verses of Malachi, indeed the final verses of the Old Testament, read as follows. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. 
in the midst of declaration of judgment and destruction. The Lord is still faithful to his promise of a savior, the serpent crusher, the one who is also a king. And every king needs a herald. At this point in Israel's history, God stops speaking. No angels pronounce. No dreams are given. No prophets proclaim. God goes radio silent. He's always been faithful and true. His word has always come to pass in the past. And the nation Israel is not listening anyway. There's no more to say. And we enter what theologians refer to as the intertestamental period, the period between the Testaments, Old and New, or as some call it, the silent years. For the next 400 years, God sends not a single word to his people. Those that are faithful, they wait and wait and hope while around them, The wicked seem to prosper, and they can't see how God's promises could possibly be fulfilled. And the silence, the silence is the worst. Has God abandoned us? Will he still come through on his promises? Or have we messed up too badly? For the first hundred years, the Persian Empire held power over Judea, and then Alexander the Great conquered the Persians, and Israel fell under Greek influence for the next 125 years or so. And then Antiochus Epiphanes took over. He was the first pagan monarch to persecute the Jews for their faith. Until that time, they'd had some relative freedom to just carry on uh, as usual. But Antiochus went so far as to order the Jews to sacrifice pigs on the temple altars. And if you know anything about the Old Testament, that you know that a pig is an unclean animal. A revolt began, which became a 24-year war. The Jews gained their independence mostly because of growing Roman pressure on the Greeks. This lasted for about 80 years until the Romans took over. With continuing unrest under Roman rule, the Romans finally made Herod the Great king of Judea in 37 BC. He was not a king. He wasn't an Israelite at all. He was an Edomian. Uh, But the Jews were still oppressed. And this was just a different pagan ruler. They longed for that promised son of David to be their king. The wicked mocked them. The people of Israel despaired. Their hope faded. 400 years of silence was a long time to wait. Where was the Messiah, the hope of the world? When will he come? When will his herald make the announcement? A herald isn't a common word in our language anymore. We've heard maybe Christmas carols like, Hark the herald angels sing, right? And a herald was someone who went ahead of the king, or of some great person, but typically a king. They went ahead. They made sure that everything was ready for the king's arrival. 
Sometimes they led a team to actually smooth the road to take rocks out of the way or trees, make sure that there was no hindrance to the king's arrival and to prepare the people to be ready when the king came. That was the job of a herald. In Galatians 4 verse 4, Paul writes, when the fullness of time had come. God may have been silent in those 400 years, but he continued his sovereign activity, fulfilling the prophecies of Daniel to the letter. I don't know if you recall, if you've ever taken a look, I don't know that we've spent that much time studying the book of Daniel yet, but one of the dreams that Daniel had was about a big statue that had a head of gold, right, and so on, and there were feet of iron and clay, that kind of thing. Those were prophecies of the coming uh, empires, and we just talked about how each one of those was fulfilled along the way. God was in complete control, and he wasn't going to miss a detail. Every king needs a herald. God himself had declared that a herald would announce the coming of the king and prepare the people for his arrival, and God was ready now to send that herald. So let's pray before we dive into the story and ask God to just speak to us today. God, as we study your word today, encourage our hearts as we see your faithfulness to your promises. And may it renew our faith. Sometimes we struggle with the waiting. Remind us that even if you may seem like you are quiet or silent, you are at work and you hear us. Encourage our faith, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So our focus statement for today's sermon is this. Hope in God's promises, and if you're following along with the notes, there's a few things you can fill in there. Hope in God's promises is never unwarranted. His timing is not ours, but he always faithfully delivers. Turn in your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 1. We're going to read a portion and then discuss that and read a portion again and discuss that. So we're looking at Luke chapter 1, and we're going to start at verse 5. And it reads as follows. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, While he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness. And many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient, excuse me, to the wisdom of the just and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. 
So the first thing that we see here in the, in the passage is that God finally speaks again. God finally speaks again. This is verses 5 to 17 that we just read. Despite the oppression by pagan rulers, life still goes on. And we're introduced to this man named Zechariah, who was of the priestly line. The sacrifices in the temple were carried out by these priests, who were divided up into 24 divisions. And he was in the eighth division, the division of Abijah. Each division served two weeks a year. Um, Zechariah was part of Abijah's division, which was the eighth, sorry. Not only was Zechariah one of the priests, but his wife Elizabeth was also a daughter of Aaron, also of the priestly line. So these responsibilities in the temple, they were familiar and they were treasured. It was part of their regular rhythm of life. Zechariah and Elizabeth were old and Zechariah had been doing this for many years. It was a privilege. You see, Zechariah and Elizabeth were believers, justified in God's sight. The passage indicates that they were righteous before God, walking blamelessly. Obviously, they were not sinless. Paul reminds us that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, but they had placed their faith in God. As much as they understood this, they placed their faith in him to pardon and forgive their sin. When they did sin, they went to him in confession. However, there was this heavy burden, this sorrow in their lives. They had no children. Having suffered through infertility ourselves, I can tell you that it's a deep sorrow, one that is grieved for years. In the Middle East, that's even more true. As infertility or barrenness, as the Bible phrases it, it was seen as a shame, uh, often as a punishment by God for some unconfessed sin. And as Elizabeth grew older, the window of opportunity slowly closed. And now, in their senior years, any hope Zechariah and Elizabeth may have had for a child had faded completely. Zechariah and Elizabeth, next slide please, are symbolic of the nation Israel. Their lost hope for a child was a picture of the nation's lost hope for the Messiah. But today is a special day for Zechariah. By lot, Zechariah's name is chosen to enter the temple to burn incense. This is a big deal. It's the pinnacle, as it were, of a priest's career. You only ever get to do this once. If you're chosen to burn incense, that's going to be it. You will never be chosen again. And some priests went through their entire lives never being chosen. Zechariah enters the temple alone to fulfill his duty while all the other priests in his division wait outside and pray. And the people are there as well. His job is going to be that after he offers the incense, he will come out and lead the morning prayers. That will be his job. Man, this is like, this is a big day, right? And at that moment, the angel Gabriel appears to him and we're told Zechariah was troubled and fear fell upon him. This is a natural response to meeting a divine being. Anyone remember 
who the last person in biblical history was that met the angel Gabriel? Anyone want to take a guess? Um, and so that comes a little bit later. Uh, no, it's actually Daniel. Daniel was met by the angel Gabriel. And Daniel's response was fear as well. It is natural for us to be uh, taken aback, as it were, when we meet a divine being. But the angel said to Zechariah, do not be afraid, for your prayer has been heard. Do not be afraid for you. Can you imagine? Here's Zechariah on the best day of his priestly life because he's been chosen to burn the incense. That's pretty rare. And then to be met by an angel, that's really rare, who tells him that God has heard his prayer. Man, you could full stop right here and it would already be out of this world amazing for Zechariah. Have you ever had a time in your life where you have wondered if God even heard your prayer? Those are tough experiences to go through. Zechariah actually had an angel come and tell him that God had heard his prayer. What an experience. And the angel goes on to say, which prayer God has heard? It's the one that he and Elizabeth have prayed for a child. The angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children to Israel, to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. That's the job of a herald. So now not only will he and Elizabeth have a son, he will be someone very unique. Echoing the prophecy of Malachi... He will turn the hearts of the people back to the Lord. He will go before God in the spirit of Elijah. It was all prophesied so long ago. And the people would have been very familiar with that prophecy. He will be the herald who goes before the king to make the people prepared for the king's arrival. What king? None other than the long-awaited Messiah king. They knew that prophecy was connected to the Messiah. What incredible news. What an incredible day. You would think Zechariah would be leaping for joy, mind blown at all that has happened, all that's been told to him. But when you've dwelt so long in the hopeless, it's sometimes really hard to hold out hope. In the next section, Zechariah doubts the word. Let's keep reading. Verse 18, and Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent 
and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah. Remember, he was going to come out and lead the morning prayers. The people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. The offering of the incense doesn't take that long. What's going on? And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them, and he remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home, and after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. I pointed out that the news was great. God heard Zechariah and Elizabeth's prayer, but then Zechariah hears what prayer has been heard, right? He said, how shall I know this? Sorry, you were already on it. It was great. Um, Can you back up? Yeah. Um, He says, how shall I know this? I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. What he's saying is, "Uh, Lord, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but man, we're old. That ship has sailed, right? Old people don't have babies, Lord. I guess he momentarily forgot about a guy named Abraham and his wife, Sarah, but that happens. This could have been a moment of great faith for Zechariah, but in this moment, he doubts. Despite the presence of an angel and the stunning words of his proclamation, Zechariah just can't bring himself to believe that it could actually be true. And in case we feel inclined to be hard on him, take a moment and ask yourself, have I had times in my life where I have doubted the goodness of God? If you're anything like me, then you know that even though God has proved to be faithful to his promises again and again, we still have moments where we doubt. We wonder if he's heard our cries or that he cares or that he'll do anything to help. For years, <laughs> for years I prayed that God would save my rebellious son. But as time went on and there was no change, I struggled to believe that there would ever be a change. <clears throat> Sorry. Like Israel in the silent years. Like Zechariah and Elizabeth waiting for a baby, I lost hope. Praise God, he rebuked my doubt and answered my prayer. (laughs) It would be easy to focus on Zechariah's failure here, but do you know what I see portrayed here? I see God's grace. I think there's a slide for that. No, maybe it didn't register. All right. I put a little phrase, I think, on the, on the note there. I can't remember what it said. God's discipline results from his grace, something to that effect, I believe. God doesn't toss Zechariah on the garbage heap. Instead, God disciplines Zechariah because that's what a loving father does. Hebrews 12, verse 6 tells us, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And chastises every son whom he receives. The angel says to Zechariah, after 400 years of silence, you didn't believe the word of God, so you will be silent a little longer. It's 
temporary discipline, not permanent disowning. People, your heavenly Father loves you. He's not looking for an excuse to unload you or disown you. He has invested everything he holds dear into your salvation and sanctification. Have you blown it? Have you messed up? Have you made some serious mistake? Don't turn from God. Turn to God and find grace, amazing grace, to meet your deepest need. What is sweet to see is that the, dis- the discipline had its intended effect. Zechariah's faith was restored. How do we know this? I want you to picture the scene. Because it's kind of concise in the scriptures there. Zechariah comes home after his time of service in the temple. He walks in the door. Maybe Elizabeth's in another room. She's like, hi, honey. How was your time in Jerusalem? Zechariah is speechless. He's at a loss for words. He had to know I was going to make a pun in there somewhere. But there's a look in his eye that Elizabeth has not seen in a while. And soon thereafter, she, with, I'm sure, was a mixture of joy and wonder and awe. She realizes she's pregnant. Now talk about a high-risk pregnancy right? She's old and she's going to have a baby. We don't have time to study the passage, but in about her sixth month, Mary comes to visit and the baby in Elizabeth's womb literally leaps at the sound of Mary's voice. Remember what the angel said? He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. The miraculous baby in Elizabeth's womb will be the herald of the miraculous baby in Mary's womb. As the angel said to Mary, nothing is impossible with God. Okay, let's flip over to 57. Verse 57, we're going to read the final portion here. And we're going to see how God fulfills his promise. God fulfills his promise. Verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. Remember what the angel said? He will bring much joy in his birth. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed. And he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. So the time came for Elizabeth to give birth. The Bible doesn't dwell on the details, but I can only imagine that although it was a time of great joy for Elizabeth and Zechariah, it had to have been very hard too. I witnessed only some of what our daughter endured in her pregnancy. It was hard on her body, and she was 22. Imagine a 60 or 70 or 80-year-old woman going through a pregnancy. Nevertheless, the time came and she gave birth. 
I love that it says her neighbors and relatives rejoiced with her. On the eighth day, they went to the temple to have the firstborn son circumcised, and there was an offering that needed to be made. You might recall that Mary and Joseph did the same thing with Jesus, right? And we'll probably look at that uh, next week. Uh, or maybe not. I'm not sure. I can't remember. Um, but this was, <laughs> this was something special. This offering that they were bringing at the temple, this was an offering they never, ever thought they would get to bring. At the circumcision, it's called the Brit Milah in Jewish, the, Hebrew, the child would be named, and the culture had very particular rules uh, and traditions about naming the child. He'd typically be given his father's name. If you think about Simon Bar Jonah, right? The Bar means son of, right? So he might have been given another name, but it might have been Bar Zechariah or something to that effect, right? Always a kind of a... a reference back to an ancestor. It could have been his father, could have been a family member, something like this. Elizabeth states, no, he will be called John. And they're all like, there's no John in your family. And there's almost a sense of, you're a silly woman. We're going to talk to the man. So they turn to Zechariah and they say, What's his name going to be? Because he's the father. He's the leader in this household. He's going to make the decision. He can't speak, so he asks for a slate. And faith surely intact, he calls for this slate, and he writes, his name is John. The discipline that God put him under had him reassess. He had time, nine months actually, to think about this whole thing. And he comes into this now ready. He is, he might not be able to speak, but he is going to communicate God's will nevertheless. His name is John. Immediately his tongue is loosed, and now instead of expressing his doubt, Zechariah proclaims God's glory. All in attendance feared. Everyone knows without a doubt that this child, this miraculous son of Elizabeth and Zechariah, he's going to be unique. The hand of the Lord was upon him. Every king needs a herald. The king promised by God was no different, and his herald would be this miraculous child of Zechariah and Elizabeth. John would be the one to tell the nation Israel that the promised one, that serpent crusher of Genesis chapter 3, the lamb that God would provide from Genesis chapter 22, The Prince of Peace from Isaiah 9. He was coming. The silence had ended. God, you'll recall in Hebrews, had spoken in times past through the prophets. Now he was going to speak through his son. The celebration of Christmas. There's a slide for this, I believe. Celebration of Christmas, brothers and sisters, is a repeat declaration that God fulfills his promises. The herald he promised was provided to announce the coming of the king that God provided, who would bring us the salvation and forgiveness and redemption that God provided. It is God at work here. And he's doing things powerfully and miraculously. Let's take a look at a few applications out of this. There's three that I'd like us to consider. 
Number one, as followers of Jesus, we ought to be described as righteous. Zechariah and Elizabeth were described as righteous. Would the people that know you best say that about you? Would they describe you as walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord? Or are you a different person at home than you are at church? Be honest with yourself. I mean, you can kid yourself, but you can't kid God. He knows. A question like this should be convicting. It might be tempting to accuse me of legalism at this point. But I want you to know that I'm not talking about perfectionism about making sure you have checked all of the boxes just for that reason. What I'm talking about is a heartfelt desire and determination to honor God with every single aspect of your life. Not so that you can stand in front of others and say, you see, this is how you do it. But rather that you can stand before God and say, I loved you with every fiber of my being and my desire was to honor you alone. That you do this because you believe that he's God and he's worthy of your diligent obedience. It's completely different motivation. Secondly, just because we live right doesn't mean everything will go right. Just because we live right doesn't mean everything will go right. I have struggled in the past with thinking that I'm on the right team, so I should be blessed, right? I'm I'm following God. I'm trying to obey him. Why are things going south? However, if we believe that God is righteous, just, sovereign, and good then even the hardest things in our lives, God has intended for a purpose, and he is fulfilling his purposes through them. This is precisely what we've just finished studying in 1 Peter, right? That our suffering has purpose, that God is doing something with it. Are you willing to trust him in the midst of the hard things in your life? And thirdly, every king needs a herald. Now, John was the herald for his first coming. The Bible says that Jesus is coming back a second time, this time as conquering king. Who are his heralds? We are. We are his heralds. Are you, full faith, are you faithfully carrying out your assignment? John did. Are you proclaiming the gospel to whoever will hear and preparing the hearts of the people around you, the hearts of the people in your lives for the king's arrival? Oh, brothers and sisters, let's renew our commitment to the gospel task. Let's be bold to announce the imminent return of our king. We know it's not our work. We know it's not us that changes people's hearts. We have prayed and we have heard just about a month ago that a man who was lost came to Christ, Tom Godby. And I think there were a number of us that were wondering if it would ever happen, but it did. And we know it wasn't us, 
we know that it wasn't the things that we said, whoever had opportunity to speak to him. It was God at work in the lives. But you know what? He still calls us to be faithful. He still calls us to speak. And you may, you may look, I've done it, I've done it. I have looked at people and said, they probably won't be interested. And God has rebuked me for my doubt in those moments. And he has shown me that it's not me, it's him that's at work. His Holy Spirit. I need to be faithful to answer his call on my life. We need to do that, brothers and sisters. And if you're here with us today, and you know you're nowhere near righteous, that you're under God's condemnation for your sin, and, and you're not at all ready if he should come back today, and he could, then I would tell you that you can find forgiveness and salvation healing and restoration today before you leave this gymnasium right here through the blood sacrifice that Jesus made in your place at Calvary. Don't leave before taking care of this today. This could be an amazing Christmas as a consequence. Waiting till next week could be too late, however. Come and talk to me if you'd like to know more about this. Let's just wrap up in prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word and the amazing things that we read in it. We are reminded again and again that you are God. You are at work. Your promises will be fulfilled. Your will will be done. Nothing can stand in your way. And you have saved us. Those of us who have placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ... We're reminded here in this story that John comes as the baby born to be the herald of the king born to Mary. We'll read more about that next week. Father, your plans and purposes throughout the years and throughout eternity, right on track, happening just as you said they would, because you are sovereign. We rejoice in that, and we're reminded of that, especially if things are difficult and, and bleak in our lives. You are in control regardless. We just pray that you would encourage our faith, strengthen us in our faith. And if there's someone here this morning who doesn't know you yet, Lord Jesus, we pray that they would take that step, that they would come to you and trust you and see that you are good and loving and kind and holy and just. And that you will forgive and save and redeem and restore. We just ask it all in your precious name and give you thanks. Amen.